And now, The Low Post. Welcome into a Friday edition of The Low Post podcast where a story on ESPN plunged the NBA into chaos yesterday. The author of the story, Baxter Holmes, is here. As you surely know by now if you're listening to this podcast, it is a 7,000-word investigative piece that details allegations of sexism, racism, the use of the N-word, a climate of toxic misogyny at the Phoenix Suns during the 17 years of Robert Sarver's governorship of the team. It is based on Baxter Holmes' interviews with over 70 people, current and former employees mostly, most of which spoke anonymously for obvious reasons, fear of reprisals. These are very sensitive details, uh, one or two of which spoke on the record, including former Phoenix Suns head coach Earl Watson. Needless to say, the allegations are are damning beyond damning, really, if proven true. And we'll talk about the number of witnesses to many of these particular anecdotes, because I think that has gotten a little bit lost in the reaction to the story. Uh, Robert Sarver, again, who has owned the Suns for 17 years, forcefully denied almost everything in Baxter's story. He confirmed a couple of incidents that we can talk about later. Frankly, I, I thought that was a rather smart legal strategy on his part, confirm some of the instances that he, in his mind, I think throws away as sort of jocular attempts at fun and deny everything else. But the, for, the denials are forceful. There's no question the denials are forceful. The denials are personally aimed at Baxter in a way that I think is unusual in these kinds of situations. There was a mention in one of the Sun's statements about hiring defamation counsel. So they are not messing around. The situation has sort of ended in this stalemate of here are the details with all these witnesses. Here's Robert Sarver saying, deny, deny, deny. The league has launched an investigation into all of this, which could and will presumably include interviews of by the league investigators. They hired an outside law firm, Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen and Katz to, to do this um, and would presumably interview several of the people that Baxter interviewed. And we'll see how that unfolds. Look, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this story. This is not going to be a story that goes away in a week or even in six months. We're going to have a lot of voices on here to talk about it. I thought here 24, less than 24 hours, actually, after the story was published, the best way to start was just talk to the guy who wrote the story. And that's Baxter Holmes. Um, Baxter, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. I know your life has been chaotic for a long time now, but especially so in the last 24 hours. Um, and let's let's actually begin there, because a story like this doesn't just drop and the conversation sort of ends. This kind of story starts a conversation. So I'm curious to hear what the last 24 hours have been like for you. Who have you heard from? What's what what kind of stuff is coming into your phone and particularly reaction from from within the Suns and within the broader Suns community of former staffers or whatever? Who, what has this been like for you? Uh, for me, a lot of coffee and trying to keep my phone charged, for sure. Um, uh, in terms of reaction, one of the things that I could say without getting too specific is I've, I've been overwhelmed by the number of messages and calls from people who have expressed um, uh, support and appreciation and talking current and former employees for these issues being brought to light. Um, and I've also heard from a number of people who I've never spoken to, but reached out in various capacities, described their employment at the Suns. And some mentioned closure. Uh, 
you know, feeling again that some of these issues have been brought to light. Some of these messages have been quite emotional. Um, and in talking with people, uh, even late into yesterday, that that was a theme as well. So, yeah, long, a long day. That's that's for sure. I'm I'm, uh, you know, again, a lot of a lot of coffee. To add to that, I can say this in my own reporting, and, and I I spent yesterday on the phone all day long and all night long, um, as as most of us at ESPN did. The Suns released two vociferous statements, one from Robert Sarver himself, one from Jason Rowley, the president and CEO uh, of the team. And not only denying everything, but also, or almost everything, I should say again, but also sort of forcefully pushing back and saying, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm not going to read the whole statement, but we've, we've committed to an environment of work-life balance, of diversity, um, they have the sentence that that struck a chord, I think, with some people inside the organization, and that was, we have a track record of hiring and promoting women, racial minorities, and LGBTQ candidates in roles that have been predominantly held by men. That phrasing, held by men, was curious to several people who I heard from. I think those, from what I've heard, and just, again, we have to be a little cautious here, those statements... And again, this is new, it's fresh, it's raw. We'll see what happens in a week, in two weeks, in a month. Those statements have, I think, almost emboldened some people within the organization because they expected a degree of contrition that has, or or hoped for, I should say, a degree of contrition that these statements do not evince. And in fact, these statements are are, are boastful of an environment that to at least some people in and around the suns does not ring true. And I wonder if that would perhaps embolden people who maybe didn't even talk to you or talk to you anonymously to cooperate with the NBA investigation who might not have otherwise. That's that's one initial impression. Again, it's raw. It's fresh. We probably shouldn't say much more than that. But that has come through in my phone calls yesterday. Without getting too much into it, the word that you just used, emboldened, was one I heard quite a bit yesterday, particularly in reaction and I guess you're here. You're hearing the same things to their statement, um, or statements, I should say. But yes, emboldened and, and Woj and I reported um, in our story yesterday. Uh, you know, on the NBA announcing that they were going to launch an investigation, that there is, I would say, a groundswell of support for an investigation internally from current from some current staffers. Um, I can't say too much more, but that they uh, who who have told me they're more than willing to talk uh, is one said they view this as their chance to potentially right the ship. But there is this concern that that some have expressed to me about fear of potential retaliation from Sun's leadership and wanting to make sure that in any investigation they're potentially protected uh, with respect to whether it's their identities, the information they share combination of both but uh yeah the uh you know it struck a chord right now when you said emboldened because i that that is the exact word that i heard quite a bit yesterday um after their statements came out and talking to people about um you know if they wanted to cooperate or what their thoughts were just on the whole thing well speaking of the vulnerability of some potential interviewees and things like that 
you know, everyone yesterday when the story drops, and I'm talking, I talked to every sector of the league, agents, players, governors, league officials, officials from other teams, you name it. Obviously, everyone is rushing to the final question of, is he going to lose the team over this? Uh, I think that's where that's months that's that's months years whatever down the road unless something unless something happens and we could talk about that um and a, and a common refrain i heard in those conversations was if that were to happen or if 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 his continued stewardship of the sons no matter what happens with the investigation even if the investigation clears him just because becomes untenable because players around the league their associates, their representatives believe that he said the things he said in the story, no matter what the result of the investigation is, because Robert Sarver is frankly not the kind of person who's going to get the benefit of the doubt in a lot of those quarters. If they believe that, does his continued stewardship becomes untenable? Does he just sell to sell and say, OK, I'm going to make a lot of money and leave? And, and underneath that was the sentiment from, again, all those sectors of this is going to have to be a thing where the players drive it if it goes in that direction and that gets to the point of the vulnerability of some of the employees like it just we'll see what happens but the idea that it's on the players and on the employees it always that's that's even how previous ownership situations like this sort of accelerated it was it, it became the player's job and the employee's job to speak up and and sort of push things in that direction and, and there are a lot of people who are curious if that will be the the sort of if the vulnerable will have to stand up and push and push and push, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe it will. But I will say this: there are a lot of other people who, when LeBron was diagnosed with an injury and he's going to be out a week or something, they are very curious to see what LeBron says about this because LeBron is the single player in every situation who has the power to really sway not only public sentiment but but what other players what they say. And do they look to him? And if you remember in the previous situation with the Clippers, he came out forcefully and said, this can't be in our league. And so he may not do media for the next week or 10 days, but people are very curious to see if and how he addresses it. You you were probably watching intently last night to see how Chris Paul, who played for the Clippers then and was the union president for a long time, how he and Devin Booker, the longest tenured player, uh, address the situation and they took the route that I expected them to take and probably you did too of saying we've not heard Robert Sarver say those things we're going to let the league investigation play out and in the meantime try to win games and by the way we made the finals last year did that did that were you watching that carefully from afar I, I was monitoring it for sure um, I, I totally understand the position that some of them are in um, I can't remember who my, my mind's a little foggy over the last 24 hours uh but they one of them i think said you know we're not insensitive to the nature of either the allegations or what people went through something like that but it was yeah i was monitoring it but um and and like many thinking about chris paul the the kind of weird situation that he's in again after having gone through the clippers um thing with donald sterling thing whatever i don't know that's not the right word but you know what i mean so that's uh yeah it's but you bring up a great point on on players driving it and what LeBron may or may not say um I'm really close to the situation so I haven't I'm maybe too close to have uh stepped back 30,000 foot view and think about it but those are great points and like you said I'm I'm curious as well
um, and uh, to see what either people say or uh, all of it. Let's go through some of the specifics in your story, because I do think it's important in a story like this to nail down some of the reporting. The story opens with an anecdote from Earl Watson, who recounts Robert Sarver saying to him in a 2016 game between the Suns and the Warriors, um, you know, why does Draymond Green get to run up the court and say N-word? Sarver, who is white, allegedly said, repeating the N-word several times in a row, you write. You can't say that, Watson, who is black and Hispanic, told Sarver. Why, Sarver said. Draymond Green says N-word. You can't effing say that, Watson said again. Um, Tell me a little bit about your reaction when you heard that story, if you can, from Earl Watson. And clarify, because there are just so many details in this story, and this is the one that tops it, tops the story in terms of text. Please clarify what Sarver's specific denial to this story was. Yeah, um, I need to, I feel like I should pull up the story here. First of all, my reaction certainly made my eyebrows go up, but I would note, as, as we note in the story, that in talking to other sources who shared stories that were along these lines, and I think we, um, we note in the story about, you know, a former former executive, former coach, others who described him retelling stories that he might have overheard or did overhear from players and using the exact language down to the N-word. Um, well, let, well, let, well yeah. let's talk specifically about that because, let's again, people are fixated on the interviewed 70 people thing, and that's a lot of people. It's a big number. It's a round number, right? So people like it. Here's the sentence. At least a half dozen Sun staffers, that's at least six, at least a half dozen Sun staffers recounted to ESPN instances of Sarver hearing a story from a black player and then using the same language when retelling it down to the usage of the N-word. So they're unnamed, other than Earl Watson, who is separate, I think, from those half dozen people. They're unnamed, but it's, you don't pick those numbers at random, as we're going to see in other other parts of the story. That's a half dozen people. That's six people. They may be anonymous, but what you are telling people is in my notes somewhere, I have six people who claim to have overheard Robert Sarver say this word, retelling, retelling stories in which he's essentially quoting black players or black people of using that word, right? That's what you're, that's what that half dozen is. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now, I, I would also note, and because we have this instance in a story or in, in an anecdote uh, later in the story where a high-level executive overheard uh, Robert using this language with respect to the hire, why he felt uh, the team did uh, to hire Lindsey Hunter as the team's head coach. So, uh, which was, in a, I would say, probably was in a different vein than just retelling. But yes, we didn't pick that, didn't pick that number at random. Um, you know, I, I, a former head coach of the Suns described hearing that kind of language uh, um, that it was commonplace. So yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, again, so it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people <laughs> is the point that, I, I'm, that I'm making. Well, one thing I wanted to touch on a lot of people, cause yes, this is a lot of people. And somebody asked me, uh, you know, that number, uh, and certainly look, we, for as many as I talked to, I, I reached out to dozens and dozens and dozens more. I, I don't have a number there. It's, 
uh, it's a lot, um, well over a hundred, I'm sure in terms of, you know, a total people I reached out to, but I will say something that was quite interesting was there came a time when people started contacting me, um, people whose contact information I had and you know, they, they called and might've said, I heard you were working on this story. Um, and I really need to talk about what I experienced or what I witnessed or things of that nature. And certainly look, you have to confirm and cooperate all kinds of things, everything, but that was, and some of those calls were quite emotional. Um, a number of calls throughout this entire process were incredibly emotional as people recounted things they experienced, things they witnessed, the toll on their personal life, going to professional counseling, leaving and dealing with issues years later, as we recount in the story, hearing people talk about, um, you know, it, it broke me, uh, people saying that, uh, in one instance, I was contemplating suicide that the, the, the overall just toll on, um, people for what they, I don't know, I'll say went through in a lot of these experience was, was incredibly striking and, uh, certainly will stay with me. And you kind of touched on this earlier with the, you know, talking about vulnerable, I don't take lightly what it takes for anyone to share a story about this as difficult as so many of these are and to come forward. Um, every time I read an investigative story, I always think about that, the people that, that kind of spoke up um, and what that takes. It takes a ton. Zach, you know this, you, you know, you do this kind of work um, as well, but I, I, it's not lost on me and it takes a credible, an incredible amount of courage to come forward, to bring these issues to light and, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, the overall toll and the emotion that came through in so many of these conversations, I, you know, I don't know if that comes across on the page, but it, it certainly is something that will stay with me. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Malika Andrews, our colleague and the host of NBA Today, I saw her on, on Max Kellerman's show yesterday, and she said there, there are four quadrants to this story. There's, there's race, there's gender, there's the human resources issues that we talk about, and there's something else I don't remember. Um, and they're all bad. They're all awful. All the allegations are disturbing and terrible. We've seen the Dallas Mavericks 
already navigate a situation of a toxic environment where women were made to feel specifically women were made to feel uncomfortable and there was an environment of uh, alleged sexual harassment and things of that nature and we saw what happened to the mavericks mark cuban owns the mavericks he he donated money to charity he apologized they brought in outside executives to sort of reform the organization that precedent is there it's it exists other precedents with the clippers and the hawks exist and and breaking it down by quadrant the reason why i'm focusing on how many people overheard him say that word is because if sarver is ever to actually lose the team and again i want to be clear we are miles from that the nba was made clear last night we are miles from that this investigation is going to take a long time we don't know what it's going to turn up we don't know who's going to talk we don't know what they have there is apparently no tape no email record yet anything like that let's be clear if he's ever to lose the team it's probably the race quadrant that accelerates his losing of the team. That's the thing that that's the thing that based on the Mavericks press and other stuff that there that there's no going back from. And that's why I'm sitting here looking at how many people overheard him say this in what situation. And that half dozen, that's that sticks out to me. I mean that that that's that I think again in obsessing over the seventy, let's let's break down sort of who heard what and when. And and that's a half dozen people. And the Lindsey Hunter quote you talk about in there, which is just they're they're all degrees of horrible, inexcusable. Obviously, that goes without saying. That's overheard. Him allegedly saying these n words need an n word as their coach. That's overheard by one person, correct? Yes. And and but I would okay. note right after that um, that um, uh, separately. A second person described hearing Robert use the same type of, well, the same characterization, but without using the N-word to describe why the team needed to hire Earl Watson. And again, to be clear, Sarver denies using the N-word except in one instance in which he claims, I quoted a player describing how we have to have each other's backs and I quoted his quote back to him and said I shouldn't use that word. That's the only instance, I believe, in which Sarver will admit to using that word, even quoting. Uh, needless to say, all of this stuff is, is shocking to read and uncomfortable um, to talk about. And it, and it almost feels catless and unfair to say that the racial quadrant, as Malika put it, is, is what ultimately will be the focus. Because some of the other details in here on what it's like to work for the Suns are awful and i want to read something again some of these things just fly under the radar okay i'm going to read you a sentence from your story more than a dozen employees just let that sink in for a second more than a dozen a dozen is 12 more than a dozen employees recalled sarver making lewd comments in all staff meetings including discussing times when his wife would perform oral sex on him more than a dozen Again, you don't choose these numbers by accident. More than a dozen. Four, that's a specific number, four former employees said that in several all-staff meetings, Sarver claimed he needed to wear Magnum or extra-large condoms. Four. Like, four people shared that detail with you. It's an absolutely ridiculous, absurd, and inappropriate detail, and four people shared it. 
that stuff is not getting as much attention because of the focus on race and the N-word. And again, people, it's hard to focus on all this. If a, a dozen, I, and, and then you go on to describe this atmosphere where female employees, understandably, are overhearing this and listening to this and thinking, why, how can I work here? Right? I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. I don't, I'm not, I don't even have a question, but like that's <laughs> four is a specific number of people for a specific anecdote about condoms, which if we were ever in a company meeting and somebody said that, we'd all be like, what just happened? Yeah. What you just said, uh, you know, if we were in a company meeting and we heard someone say, we'd be like, what just happened? I heard, I heard similar types of reactions and remarks to people who uh, witnessed these things, overheard these things. And I want to step back a second. You know, one of the things that in, in so many uh, of these conversations with staffers and employees that they would talk about, or like, the, I guess, kind of led to a lot of these stories is just asking them simply, you know, what, what was it like to work there or what is it like to work there? And they would say, oh, man, I, you know, and then they'd, they'd share stories. And you, there were certain stories uh, that you just heard time and again. And people would say, this is the kind of place this is. And there were also, and they would, you know, whatever. They talk about things that he might say at all staff meetings, according to, you know, things they overheard or witnessed. But there were also stories, and many of, you know, many of them are in the story, that people in certain departments, they said, okay, in my department, this thing happened. I was present for it. And this is representative of, of who we are. Um, and they're kind of touchstone stories, so to speak. You'd hear them from a lot of people who in trying, in their telling and trying to characterize the organization, the culture, the workplace, uh, maybe in, with respect to some of the quadrants you mentioned, they zeroed right in on these stories. And I was there, I saw this, this happened. And, you know, and like, like you shaking their head and thinking, you know, what, what is, how can this be, so to speak? Um, but yeah, that, you know, yeah, we didn't come to these numbers lightly, as you, as you rightly point out. The, the reason that, and to, and to be clear, Sarver again denies ever having talked about condoms. So that's a, saying those four people are all wrong. Sarver denies the lewd sex talk. So that's saying those 12 people are all wrong. Not one person, 12 people, four people. And that's the numbers I paid specific attention to because they're clearly the sons are, as you would expect, going to frame this as he said, he said. And it's really he said, they said. The numbers are important to me because I'm sure you've heard all of this in your reporting. So maybe you can talk about it. Maybe you can't. I've heard it in the last 24 hours. And, and frankly, I've heard some of it before. Not, some, not the specifics like this, but I'll, I'll zoom out and say this. Having met Robert Sarver and talked to Robert Sarver and talked to lots of people who have worked for Robert Sarver, I had never heard any of the lewd sex stuff ever before. The Taylor Griffin anecdote about Robert Sarver asking him as a player for the team, hey, do you shave your legs? Do you shave your testicles? Ha, ha, ha. I had never heard anything like that before. None of those things, the anecdote about Robert Sarver pantsing a young 25-year-old employee at a company gathering. None of that surprised me based on what I have heard and what I have taken away from that before, which is, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of this and I have a point, I promise, which is Robert is awkward. Robert is socially awkward. Robert tries really hard to be funny and jocular and one of the guys. And in doing so, unknowingly 
crosses these lines of appropriateness. And so people will want to sort of excuse that quadrant away as the mis the mishappenings of an awkward guy trying to be funny on the job, trying to be the boss that's funny, trying to be one of the players. They'll dismiss that. And so it's not appropriate to dismiss it that way because you have to put yourself in the position of of the people hearing this and particularly of the women hearing this who work for the team who are dependent on him to pay their salary. But they will try to say, well, that's, you know, that's just him. He's not this and that. He's not an evil person for doing those things, right? And on the flip side of that, I'm sure you heard a lot of this, and you can address both these in a second. I'm I'm sure you've heard, and Devin Booker and Chris Paul said this, I've never heard him say the N-word. I've you and, and I heard that from people off the record who've worked for the Suns for years yesterday. Oh, I never saw I never heard him say that. That's why those half dozen in addition to Earl Watson are going to be important because those are the two sort of responses to those quadrants I think you will hear. Not necessarily even from people defending Robert Sarver, just from people who have been around him saying, Well, on the one hand, yeah, he's just sort of this awkward guy trying to be jocular, and on the other hand, well, I've never heard him use that language. None of that means anything, but I'm sure you've heard versions of both of those things ad nauseum by now. Uh yeah, the the point that you, you made about knowingly, there's a little bit of a gray area there, and that came up certainly in conversations. People would say, you know, I, I don't know um, if they they know that if this person who's at the top of an organization knows they can or can't say these types of things um, or do yeah, these to be types clear, of things. I said unknowing. I said to be clear, I said unknowingly only as like that's the kindest possible reading of sure. this from Robert Sarver's yeah. perspective, right? I don't know that it's unknowingly. It could be knowingly. Certainly he should know better. The, the, uh, so that came up, that came up for sure. And I remember asking a member of the ownership group about that. And they said, and as we mentioned in our story, he's not clueless. He's doing it because of power. And I would say that sentiment was shared with others there's a lot you look various sentiments in the story are echoed by a lot we might have chosen to include one you know do you want to have 12 15 however many people um <laughs> you know basically the same types of quotes all saying the exact same thing um you want to you know so it's a, it's a hefty read <laughs> i recognize it takes a lot of people a lot of time or you know time to I say a lot of time, but it takes people time to get through all of it. But um, yeah, the, the point you made is it, it, it's interesting. The knowingly is that is a, a serious topic of, of that is on a lot of people's minds. And I think it, in talking, you know, I contacted Taylor Griffin and asked him for comment. And I believe he said something to the effect of, you know, I, I laughed at the time at that remark, but for the leader of an organization or for the owner of a team to say such a thing is, is inappropriate. And that type of comment, um, and I would say overall sentiment from a lot of people is like, you know, what's acceptable for the leader of any organization? What do we, what do we consider to be acceptable conduct? Um, regardless of whether they are, you know, as, as you mentioned, maybe trying to fit in, whether they're socially awkward, like where, where's the line? It's a, it's a, yeah. That question was asked to me quite a bit, to be honest with you. 
let me let me talk to you, talk through with you another piece of the story that has gotten a lot of attention, and that's the idea that when when people, and particularly female employees, would would seek to correct what they viewed as a toxic environment for them, that the HR office was not a place that they felt comfortable turning to. And even people within the HR office would say, please don't turn to us because we're not going to be able to do anything. Uh, the climate here is not friendly to it. The one anecdote that has gotten the most attention in that in that span, uh, in that in that part of the, in that quadrant, I like Malika's terminology, quadrant, um, go on. is this one. And I'll just read it and, and we and we can talk about it. One female former employee said that after being physically assaulted by a male coworker outside of the office, physically assaulted, a female coworker, so a third person, went to HR out of concern for the employee's safety. The two told ESPN that HR spoke with the alleged victim, ultimately deciding that simply moving her desk would resolve the issue. Who are the two? The two told ESPN that HR spoke. I, I was a little like 10% confused. I assume I'm interpreting it correctly, but who are the two sources there? Now, without naming them, obviously, just because sure. there's yeah. three people mentioned there and I couldn't tell who the two were. So we have the, the, the female former employee who said that they were um, physically assaulted by a coworker. We have another staffer uh, colleague at the time um, in the same department. And then we have, uh, later that's mentioned in the same anecdote, a third staffer who, uh, independently said, told me about, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but just, you know, that, that they moved her desk away from this coworker who allegedly did this. And so far as they knew, and the other two, uh, staffers said the same thing, that that was the end of the, that there, there was no further resolution beyond it so far as they knew. And I wanted to, if we, can we unpack the HR stuff? Um, cause this, I know this took up some Absolutely. real estate. Go, your story. Yeah. Go ahead. This, I know this took up a lot of real estate in the story and, um, I don't, I don't know how much people are talking about it, but I, I would like to unpack this here because throughout the reporting on this, there's certainly times when, you know, like I said, my eyebrows went up. The HR um, aspect, I, I can't tell you how many people brought up HR and brought up issues with HR, feeling that they could not go to HR, that they did not feel it was a safe place, that they feared retaliation reprisal, uh, bringing up instances of you know, bringing issues to HR and then being told soon after that they were no longer a fit for the organization. There were some there, and and then also, I mean, look when when speaking to former HR staffers who who said, and and they're anonymously quoted in the story. Um, I think it's some length that when they would advise people, do not if you come in here, and people see you in here, you're going to have a target on your back. So I, you know, telling them like, hey, let's go take a walk, let's talk outside the office, let's find a safe space, and I'm going to tell you now that there's nothing really we can do for you, more or less. And, and I would advise you to sue the organization. I remember hearing that on multiple instances. Um, and, you know, it, that's a hard thing to hear, um, I think, because people wanted to, staffers described wanting an avenue 
to potentially address things they saw, things they experienced, and feeling as if they had none. Um, and, but I can't, yeah, the, the amount of people who brought up HR, man, I, and uh, they would, you know, people would say like, look, I know, I get it, HR in some ways is there to protect the company, whatnot, but there has to be some, there has to be some element of, of, of us being able to feel safely, uh, like a, a safe avenue for us to, to voice these things or file complaints and not feel as if, you know, that it's the exact opposite of that and that we're afraid to do so. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, the, the HR element, um, I, I couldn't tell you how many people spoke to me about that. It dozens and dozens and dozens. It's a lot. Related to that, I keep being surprised whenever any of these, um, these stories come up. The NBA is always releasing these statements that say, well, we didn't get any calls to our anonymous hotline for employees who feel they need help um, or that something is dreadfully amiss within their organization. Something about that hotline system as a total aside does not work because people don't call it. And it just, I, I don't know, I don't know even know, I, I, I don't want to make light of it, but they, that hotline thing is not, doesn't appear to be a, a vehicle that I, people use. One thing for whatever that, um, I get some questions, people ask me like, why didn't people call the hotline? Or why didn't people file complaints internally? And I've read so many investigative stories and it feels like there's a, there's a paragraph in every one of them. Um, where if it's, we're talking about like workplace issues, toxic, hostile workplace, whatever, where it, it, it's like almost boilerplate text. It feels like that people will say, I did not feel comfortable. I feared retaliation. I feared reprisal. I feared all these things. Um, so you have a culture of silence, a culture of complicity. I, one of the HR staffers I talked to told me they felt guilt about that in, in, you know, if, if they in any way played a part in that, uh, which was a, a sad thing to hear. Um, uh, or I would say they, they were sad when they said it and it admitted as much. But it's, it's uh, again, this goes back to the courage of speaking out, man. Like, it, this, that is a heavy, heavy thing. Um, I, I don't take it lightly, but I also understand for those who do not feel that they are in an environment where they can voice these issues, how difficult that that is. And it, and so it goes back to your question of, of what is any organization or any entity, what is their responsibility in that way to make sure that people feel as if it's not a culture of fear and silence and, you know, complicity and whatnot. But yeah, that's, you know, I, I, I this, these are important topics for sure. Let's, wrap here by there were two other anecdotes connected in the story that as soon as I saw them I knew would get a lot of spotlight attention because they just are just NBA flashpoint kind of anecdotes the first is during the 2012-13 season two former longtime staffers said Sarver tells a joke about how the Suns are going I'm paraphrasing now but I want to say it's two staffers said this it's not one it's two Sarver makes a remark that he considers a joke that others consider offensive and inappropriate about how, well, the Suns have performed badly in Los Angeles. The players are, are probably partying too much. 
how about we fly in some women on the Suns dime, presumably, to um, entertain the players so that they don't leave the hotel, they don't go out, they don't party, maybe they'll play better. That's two former staffers, correct? Yes. Connected to that in the story is the Suns try to sign LaMarcus Aldridge in 2015, which was a very uh, interesting and strange basketball story even before this anecdote. And Aldridge expresses a remark about how, you know, one of the reasons he's he's considering the Spurs instead of the Suns is that he wants to be closer to his children. And um, Sarver remarked to two basketball operations staffers. So, again, that's two basketball operations staffers that the Suns needed to have local strippers impregnated by NBA players so those players would have children in the Phoenix area and feel obliged to be closer to them, the now former staffer said. So that's two, again, two staffers for that one, correct? Yes. And uh, Sarver in a letter, and then you go down lower, Sarver in a letter from his legal team denied making either remark. I just wanted to confirm with you. He's de- and, and then he, Sarver in the statement says, the answer is a categorical no. I never said anything like that, period. Aldridge was debating whether to play for us or San Antonio. I learned that part of his decision to go to San Antonio was because he had a family connection there. So he's talking at length about Aldridge, but I just want to be clear. He's and his legal team are denying the Aldridge anecdote and the fly women to LA anecdote, correct? Am I reading that right? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because those those got a lot of attention, understandably so. I mean, it's LaMarcus Aldridge. There's a star player. It's players in Los Angeles. And look, I'm not going to lie. I mean, if you cover the NBA for 15, 20 years, I've covered it for 12. You're going to hear remarks like that about players' night lives. And it's uncomfortable and inappropriate. But to hear it from a team governor in front of employees, including a female employee, is it is 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 a different context. Let's put it that way. Here's something I would say to that to kind of add. Um, each, any of these individual stories, um, you know, they're, they're just a piece, right, of a puzzle. And I, I would say, too, I was thinking, there was times during the reporting process, you know, what's the, the gif with uh, Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where he's got like a board and he's, He's trying to, yeah, yeah, like a detective trying to solve a case. But you're trying to add all these pieces. And one of the things that was kind of complicated on this, this is an aside, but is uh, the significant rate of turnover. Um, you're trying to understand so many things. It's not like there were just five people who witnessed everything, um, uh, so far as I know. But there's just, a, you know, you go through the media guide year after year, the amount of names that changed was really striking. I remember that very early on. So it's, and, and people uh, on the other side, uh, mentioned this to me that there's a lot of individuals who have like fractional uh, uh, time periods there. So they witnessed a cer- certain amount of things. It's like in a snapshot, but you, but you talked. So, so it, you know, it was hard in some ways people think like, well, I experienced this for this time, but you know, I couldn't speak to the full 17 years, but then their story was like identical to something that somebody else would say, almost the same exact characterizations, language, so on and so forth. And you know, from years later, or years earlier, or, or different departments across the organization. Um, uh, but again, so they're all pieces. But to go to your point, I know this is a long windup. Um, if, if very, very many or several of these pieces, they they fit a pattern of, of, you know, it could be of like, you know, maybe what you're talking about with the quadrants. And the two you mentioned specifically, um, 
were, I, I would say, touched on a quadrant about with respect to how women felt in the workplace. And if they felt like they weren't valued, weren't protected, that these are the kinds of things we hear, these are the kinds of things we see, how do you think this makes us feel? Certainly, and even in talking to, to male staffers who just describe the same kind of sentiment, you know, um, of like, this is not a place where, where, and it, and to take a step back, you know, we have a, we have a sentiment described in the story of people feeling like uh, they were inventory or hearing Robert use that, that language, um, you know, female staffers saying him referring to her once and do I own you um, as to whether to discern whether she worked for the team or for him. So, but the, the two you, yeah, the, the two you shared touch to the heart of uh, how women felt about the workplace and hearing these kinds of stories and, you know, do we matter? Do we have value? All of it. At this point, I would urge people who haven't read the whole story to sit down and read the whole story because I don't want to do the whole thing here. There's a lot in there about just basketball stuff, Sarver screaming at the coaches, which is which is well known and has been chronicled in other stories, including one by Kevin Arnovitz from a couple of years ago. There's just a, there's a lot more in there um, that that people need to read. I just wanted to sort of start the discussion about the basics, the reporting, the numbers, what's happened and what's happened already, and what might happen going forward. And what might happen going forward is. There's going to be this investigation and everyone is just going to, I think, wait to see what it turns up. And either regardless, this story is, is just beginning. We don't know exactly how it's going to unfold, but that process has only just started. And, and now it's our job and all of our jobs to sort of monitor it going forward. But it, it starts with this story and, and I wanted to dig in to the underpinnings of it a little bit more with you, Baxter. So I appreciate the time. I know these conversations are not exactly fun. You're probably tired of talking about this story already. Uh, we're deep in the weeds, but I, I want to thank you for your time. And if, if there's anything that we didn't address that you wanted to address specifically, I will now kind of leave leave the floor hmm. to you. That's a good question. First of all, I'm not tired of talking about the story. Um, so I want to set that straight right now. Uh, third, second, I... Look, I really appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Uh, someone would say this isn't fun. I, I don't, I, look, I, I love journalism, man. I love reporting. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to work with some amazing colleagues and editors and people at our organization who believe in this kind of work. And that's, I don't take that lightly. I don't take lightly the courage, as I said, of, of others to, to speak out on anything at any, you know, whatever it takes, regardless of sports, not sports, you name it. Um, anything I wanted to add, I mean, we touched on a lot. So, I mean, as you said, it's hard to, to tackle everything in the story. I don't know. Is it is it weird for me to say that uh, if anyone wants to reach out, I'm available? <laughs> um, I don't know. Pretty easy to reach. Well, you just said it, so... Right. You can all read the story. It's on the front page of ESPN.com still. It's it's pretty much everywhere. Baxter, I, I know you're you're swamped you're, you're with lots of stuff, but thanks for taking some time to help us unpack this. And um, I'm sure I'll see you somewhere down the line soon. Thanks again. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me. 
Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. All right, let's talk about some actual basketball uh, because that is far more pleasant. Uh, and talk about the team that was the story of the week before another story overtook the whole league like a tsunami. And that is the in-fighting and then winning. But before that, losing big leads. You can't ever figure this team out. The 17-time world champion Boston Celtics and the guy who knows them better than anyone. And the guy who is so realistic and fair about the Celtics that he sometimes annoys the fans who want a little more homerism from Tommy Heinsohn's heir, Mr. Brian Scalabrini. How are you? I'm doing well, Zach. How are you doing? I'm hanging in. So let's review. The Celtics blow a gazillion point lead to the Bulls and score like zero points in the fourth quarter at home to fall to two and five. Then Marcus Smart lights the whole team on fire and says, well, he didn't light the whole team on fire. He lit Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on fire and said, I'm sick of standing in the corner. These guys need to learn to pass better. It was a little more polite than that. Said they're getting better. We need to continue making progress. There was fallout from that. There was a players-only meeting that may have been really just a dinner that the players got there first. It's unclear exactly if it was a players-only meeting. And then they stomp Orlando. And in one of the most impressive performances by any team this season, grind the Miami Heat's offense, which had been number two in the league, to absolute smithereens and blowing out the Heat in Miami on the second night of a back-to-back. The Heat were not on the second night of a back-to-back. Mr. Scalabrini, what do I make of all of this? What, what is this team? So when you look at this roster, you're looking at it saying, okay, I got Smart, Tatum, Brown, Horford, Williams. And if we had to analyze that, we would say, man, that's a really good defensive group. And I like what Ime did at the beginning of the year. It didn't work all the time, but he was like, we're going to switch everything. We're going to switch and be aggressive. And early on, they were having a hard time rebounding out of it. But that group defensively should be great. 
But all the talk is always about the offense. All the talk is, can Brown and Tatum get along? All the talk is all these things like, is Smart good enough to be a point guard? But no one ever talks about the defensive end of the ball. And when you look at the team, they were 25th going into the Orlando game in defensive rating on the year. I mean, I'm sure they're going to be a lot better after holding Orlando and Miami under 80. But all those problems that they say they have, it can be solved by just getting after it defensively. And one thing I really like of what I've seen the last two games is their aggressiveness to drive and then pass. Zach, me and you can play in the NBA right now and pass the ball 30 feet from the basket, and that doesn't eat, lead to any points. You to, to be a good passing team, you have to get into the paint, into the teeth of the defense, you know, have draw two guys and then make the right basketball play. And that is what's hard to guard. And they've been doing that the last two games versus like Tatum and Brown just settling for jump shot after jump shot. That's not going to get it done in any level of basketball. Let's talk about the defense. I totally agree with you. We talked about this on NBA today after the Bulls game. I said, look, we can yap about passing and unselfishness. This team is 26th in defense, and it's embarrassing given the lineup that they're starting. You know what they are now after two straight wins? 10th. They yeah. went up 15 or 16 spots in two games. <laughs> and last night's game against Miami was the best defensive performance of any team this year, period. Um, let's, get, let's get into that because I want to I start there. Uh, you mentioned the switching, and I totally agree with you. The first few games I watched the Celtics, I was like, man, they are switching everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure they need to put Al Horford in, in that position to get blown by by that guy. That seems like a little bit of overkill, or I'm not sure they need to be putting Dennis Schroeder uh, on the block against that big guy. That seems like overkill. And like you said, they got hurt on the boards. They're still 23rd in defensive rebounding. We can talk about that. But you look at the numbers. I'm going to read you some numbers. Are you ready? This is from yeah. our, our fancy tracking data. These numbers are ri- ridiculous. Uh, the Celtics switch 31 picks per 100 possessions. That's number one in the league by far. Miami is actually number two at 26. Miami is the second switchiest team. On those plays, are you ready for this? Points per chance. That basically means like the pick and roll leads almost directly to a shot. The Celtics are allowing 0.76 points per possession. Like that's a joke. That's so good. How does that factor in for the offensive rebound? Does it or does it I'll hit you now. I'll tell you now. If you zoom out and look at entire possessions, which I do believe factors in a continuation of a possession via offensive rebound, it's still 0.927, which is good, not insanely good, but really good. And actually, if that's what you allow on every single possession, you'll have the best defense in the history of the NBA by a mile. So the switching is working. And last night, man, when they're on point, like when Miami's trying to slip screens and Boston sees it coming and gets underneath it, there was just nothing the Heat could do. I think that game was like a little bit of a warning sign to the Heat. Like, all your pretty stuff, when a really switchy defense is dialed in, you're going to have some trouble. And, man, Boston was dialed in last night. So I, I said before the season, Scal, I was higher on the Celtics than most. I said they should be a lock in the top six. They have a sneaky good chance to be number three in the East. Now, I didn't pick them. I actually picked Atlanta to be number three in the East. They are not playing very well. They haven't put together a long stretch of really good play all season, really. Um, And then the Celtics start two and five, and they're imploding. And I'm like, geez, I really just missed a boat with this team. And this team, the one that played the last couple nights, that's the team I thought, look, the offense might be sticky, but defensively they're going to be great. They're deep. That's a good regular season recipe. Like, 
Am I? Do you have faith that this is a team? This is the team that we're going to see. Yeah. I mean, are we going to go through another fallow period where they start yelling at each other again? I mean, I don't. The thing is, the the weird part about last night, they had a twenty two point lead, and Jason Tatum had zero points at the time, right? So, like, you you got to find what their offensive identity is going to be. But man, if when you watch, how about their driving kick? I don't think I've seen the Celtics do that on a steady diet of that for. I, I would say months. Like I don't. I mean, it feels like this team will never like get to the point where all they do is attack the paint and kick it out. And by the way, that is the hardest thing to guard in the NBA. I know, like fans and a lot of people are enamored by the step backs, the side steps, the tough shots. But like you, you should be able to get downhill, attack, and if you draw two then make an easy extra pass to an extra pass to a wide open shot. And if that's not there, you could drive it again. So, so I think defensively now against teams that go all in on the offensive glass, there could be some problems like, or like Toronto is a team that goes all in on the glass. They just want, they crash four guys and they're like, we'll just get back. And we're not, we don't care about defensive transition. They could have some trouble with teams like that or a great offensive rebound or multiple guys. But if Horford and Williams are playing high minutes and Tatum and Brown are rebounding out of their position, they should be able to take care of that. And they should be able to be a top five defensive team in the NBA. So I think you saw it the way I saw it. And we just like, you look at some of the numbers and what they were giving up. It was like mind blowing how bad they were defensively, but they still got to clean up the transition defense. I think their floor balance isn't good. But I still think offensively, if they can get into the driving kick mode, they could be an unstoppable team because they have so many guys that can make good decisions, not just your one superstar. Before we switch to the, the juicy stuff, why is this team 30th in fouls in, in opposing free throw rate? And they were they fouled a lot last year too. And I get that like physicality is sort of baked into the DNA of Marcus Smart and somewhat Jalen Brown. And boy, Jalen Brown... He took so much pleasure in stonewalling Tyler Hero last night. You could see him just like yeah. he slapped the floor a couple times. He's like, "Oh, you're the hot. You're averaging 22 off the bench. You're the hot story of the season. Bring it on!" And Tyler yeah. Hero could do nothing with it. And when you switch, you get yourself into situations where you're tangled up with like a little guy's tangled up with a big guy. That can. But like anecdotally, is there anything here that that like why is this such a high foul team? Um, I, I guess you could say like offensive rebounds lead to that. I think transition leads to that. Um, sometimes when you're switching guys, you could be out of position and get overwhelmed. But um, I, I, I think that they haven't adapted. If you've been watching the league, they're allowing a lot of that initial contact. And then when you hit the guy closer to the basket, it's a foul. So, you know, like, Zach, you're guarding me and I'm on the perimeter. I explode. You two-hand hand-check me and then you get your defense back on point. That's not going to be a foul. But if you try to slide your feet and you meet me at the basket, then I crash into you. That is a foul. So I just don't think they're initially that good on the ball with, with, with the initial burst. And I think that's really catching up to them with getting those fouls. And we talked about the transition. We talked about the offensive rebounds. And, like, they haven't been good defensively only these last two games they have been. So I think that that's something that they have to factor in. But I don't – I almost want to take those as mulligans, like throw all those old games away and just look at, all right, this is your now identity and these are the standards at which you're playing at and let's see where you go 
from here. Like, I don't want to watch them again, you know, like not trying on the defensive end or focusing on the wrong stuff or getting, you know, something their shoulders when they miss shots. Like, no, your identity is to grind it out defensively. And then you can get it going offensively because, you know, like you can make extra passes and get open shots. And then Tatum is going to have big nights. But we'll see if they still want to guard and sit down and do that at a high level like they did the last two games. Yeah, their path to being like a 48-win regular season team was 15th in offense, maybe a little higher if, if things break Agreed. right. And like you said, Tatum is Tatum has been he's shooting like 35%. That He's going to break out soon. Um and like fifth or fourth in defense. That that is their recipe to win a good number of games. By the way, if I'm guarding you on the perimeter, I got news for you. You're an NBA player. You talk to the New York Times about this. People think all these NBA players who are seventh, eighth, ninth men, like I could take them one. The only chance I have is to be like an old school WWE wrestler, bring a foreign object onto the floor and hit you in the groin when you start your drive. Why is it a foreign object, by the way? Why do they call it a foreign? Why is the piece of wood foreign? Why is the crowbar a foreign? Because it's foreign to the sport? Why is it a foreign object? I know, but that's all I'm doing. I'm bringing out the brass knuckles. I'm bringing out some foreign object. If you put your hands on me and you really gave me a good shove, you probably would do all right. It's that you'd be surprised. Like, I think I really believe, and I know people would think I'm nuts, but I really believe that I can guard like some of the best players in the NBA if I'm allowed to put my hands on guys. I really think that. And, and I know it's like delusional, and I still play like three times a week, right? Not against NBA players, but the physicality of the game and being able to guard isolation when you can use your hands is amazing. So what was your initial reaction to the smart comments? Where were you? And when you saw them either on Twitter or if you saw the press conference in, in its entirety, what was your initial reaction? Because to, to NBA world, it landed like almost not quite an earthquake, but a, a uh-oh again. Yeah. So like what was your initial reaction? Um, something I, I, I assume that it was something that was said multiple times. And by the way, at Ime Adoka's press conference, he talked about the assist percentage. He talked about, you know, getting Jalen and Jason to be, be more playmakers. And, and you know, Zach, I've been on this for like two and a half years now. But, you know, like, well, every, that's, the, I'm a, that's the coach, right? That's the, that's the coach and that's you and that's me. It's different when it's Marcus Smart, who probably has said this behind closed doors. Remember, there was the outburst in the bubble. Sure. Outburst is not really a great word, but there was the locker room kerfuffle in the bubble that was Smart yelling probably about this same thing. Sure. But so it's, it's like like the NBA, it's Smart. I think it's a 30,000-foot view and people it, – like it is, it is apparent to the people who are in the NBA that if those guys – so two things. If those guys are going to be – top five and top 10 players, they got to be better playmakers. And then if the Celtics are going to be a legit team, those guys got to become better playmakers. So if it's standing around watching guys play and they're taking contested shots, I think that's, I don't, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's just like, to me, it's bad basketball. I don't, I'm okay with the ball finding Tatum with five seconds on the clock and he goes into that sidestep, but I just don't, in, in my world, why would you take that shot when you have the skill set to get downhill and draw two? In my world, the bas basketball is a sport in which you draw two and you make the right play. And those side steps and all those things are all things that you need to have when you need to hit a, a buzzer beater at the end of a game or end of a clock. You need to, the shot clock's running down. That ball finds you. It's five seconds. That's why you practice all those. But outside of that, 
why not have the mentality of getting downhill and making plays for your teammates? So I'm not, I don't disagree with what Smart said, probably doing it publicly throughout like, you know, a little monkey wrench or a, let's just use a foreign object into the Celtic he named, plan. He named names. He named I know. names, man. I know, but I mean, here's the thing. You Are you married? You married? Or you, you got someone yes. that, yeah, okay. Your wife ever like get mad at you and give you a message and you're like, I'm not trying to hear that right now, but doesn't the message always get through? Eventually, whether it's a day later, two days later, or I go, man, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to go work out. The message always gets through. So I, like, I hate team meetings, players only meetings and all those things. I don't feel like at the time they're all emotional and there's like, it's, it's, it's all chaotic. Right. But I do, I do think that the message get a person standing up and saying their piece, whether right or wrong, I do think that message gets through. So I'm, I'm not down on Marcus Smart for doing it. And I, I, I hear you. You shouldn't do that. Locker room, all that stuff. But to me, the message got through to the team. And they're playing a lot better since then. First of all, in this metaphor, so just to be clear, I'm like Jason Tatum and my wife is Marcus Smart. Is that the, is that the metaphor? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, ask her, I'll ask her what she thinks about that, if she likes Marcus Smart's game. Um, and I like Jason Tatum. I'll take Jason Tatum. No, I'm not saying that Marcus Smart was wrong. I actually yeah. think Marcus Smart was right. The flip side of that is whenever they give Marcus Smart the ball more or he sort of takes more control of the offense, he, he's, he is, I think, maybe the best passer on the team. But he starts suddenly veering towards, like, shot selection that has the other players on the team being like, hey, dude, that, that, that off-the-dribble three that you just took or your ninth straight contested three that hit, like, half backboard and half rim, like, we don't, we don't need to be seeing that. All right, saw all right. In the Let me bubble. challenge you on that. I'm going to challenge you on okay, that. Okay, challenge me. All right. So the way I look at the game is a bad shot's a bad shot. So if Jason Tatum takes a sidestep three that misses or, or Brown does it, what do you think Marcus Smart's going to do? So now let me just say this. Have you ever seen Marcus Smart take a bad shot when the Celtics are driving and kicking and everyone is sharing the ball? I don't. Probably, but I don't. I, don't, I just know in the bubble – you could see his shot selection veering in that direction, and you could see Jalen and Jason on the floor sometimes being like the, the shoulder shrug. Like, dude, what was what was that? But I, but I don't. At that said, I don't think he's wrong at all about what he said about their playmaking. I think he's right. Yeah, I, I know it's a big thing out here in Boston. I don't. I maybe I'm too much in the weeds, but I don't see Marcus Smart the same way everybody else does. I I always see. I look at Marcus Smart as this: like he's going to take X amount of shots. So, or he's going to make, let's, let me just, let me back that up. He's going to make X amount of plays and a play could be a shot, a drive, a pass, whatever. So if he's standing in the corner and then all of a sudden he gets the ball and he had to touch the ball in five minutes, he's going to jack up a shot. But if the ball is moving side to side and Marcus initiates offense and that ball finds Tatum and now Tatum's going to work and, and driving, like, I think he's going to take better shots. So when, and I, and I also believe this with Al Horford as well. So when basketball is played the right way, I think those two guys are much better than when they're just standing around doing nothing, watching the two best players go isolation. I don't in, in no world do I think that that's good basketball in any world. Even even the, the exception is probably the Brooklyn Nets, but it might not be this year. It might not be because of the physicality of the game, but. James Harden and, and Kevin Durant going one-on-one -on -one is like probably where the line is for me. Everybody that's not those guys, 
I really feel like you should just play the right way and move the ball and drive and kick. And if you're good enough, you'll make enough plays because that's what good players do. Let's zoom. You said 30,000-foot view. Let's zoom that far out, like years out. Here's why the smart thing was interesting to me. I had Kemba Walker on my podcast like a month ago, and I asked him, and I knew he wouldn't answer the question. I asked him, Kemba, why does something always just seem off in Boston? Like, what's what's going on in the water there? Let me tell you why I asked him that. Because everyone blamed it on Kyrie, right? So if you zoom way out, they make the 2018 conference finals with the young guys, Scary Terry, T- Jason, Jalen, Kyrie's hurt. Uh, Hayward's hurt, right? Then they come back the next year. This is a 60-win team. It's a juggernaut they're adding. Sure. And it just all goes haywire. And the and the blame is all like there's tension between Kyrie and these young guys who feel like they did it on their own. And there's all this tension. And, and then Kyrie leaves, and he's vilified in Boston for leaving. And guess what? It, something is still wrong in the water. Even though they make the conference finals again in the bubble, like there's a locker room debate there. Kemba leaves, Hayward leaves, Brad Stevens leaves and goes upstairs, Danny Ainge leaves. There's just always something. It always feels like there's tension. There's just something that's unsettled there. No matter who the personnel is, no matter who the coaches and the GA, all this stuff, the common denominators are those three guys, Smart, Tatum, and Brown, who have been there through all of this, who, who were in that, leading that conference finals run, stayed after Kyrie left. Now Horford's back too. But is there, so when Smart says that and he names those two guys, and I thought back to that question I asked Kemba, which he very politely did not answer and just said, I don't know, I'm not on the Celtics anymore or something like that. So like, I ask you, like, is, is there something about that mix that is just sort of volatile and, and, or, or am I making too much out of all of this? Well, they did go to a conference finals without Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward. So how about, Zach, I'll ask you, do you think that was legit? you think that was who they are? Or maybe... Maybe that's not who they were, but they hit like this this magical lightning in a bottle and ended up, you know, making that. So everyone, everything's based off of that moment. Without Kyrie Irving, who goes to the conference finals with a rookie and and like Scary Terry and like who goes to the conference finals with those guys? So I'll ask you again, like if you're basing all of the messed up things that are happening with the Boston Celtics on them overachieving a year where they have. Seventy million dollars. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm. You I'm, are. I'm not. I'm saying. It, I'm no. I'm saying. Going back to that, everyone blamed the following season on Kyrie. Right? He became public enemy number one. He was the one. There was tension between him and the young guys. Then he like went a little haywire during that Milwaukee series where they got destroyed and like was going off scheme completely. And then he leaves. And and I'm like, well, then the, then they make the conference finals again. So clearly this core is still good. But it just feel it just feels like there's never harmony there yeah. for a prolonged period. Expectations. That's all I'm saying. Expectations. This is all based off of expectations. It's all based off of, you know, like like Jason Tatum was supposed to get drafted by the Celtics and then grow into the role that he became over the course of X amount of years. Jalen Brown, all these guys got like forced into it and had success at a young age. So like you you add the the, the volatility of the Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward right back into a mix of a team and Kyrie Irving's like, I'm telling you guys how to win. And they're looking at him like, like you won because you had LeBron. It all started right there. Now, I would say 
and I think if you put Danny on your podcast and he was being honest, like the pivot to Kemba Walker, which I agreed with the move. Like I like the fact that they went out there, but like maybe we should have recognized how good like Terry Rozier was and you know the ability to keep Al Horford there. If, if when Kyrie left, you could have said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. They didn't want to pay Al Horford, they didn't want to pay Gordon Hayward that money. So a lot of the things that it sounds like what you're talking about, there's always something in the water. I think they're all circumstantial. They're not just like, oh man, something like if you went to Minnesota right now and you said, hey, there's everything is all hunky dory and people love it. I mean, I, give me give me the Celtics and the conference finals and things a little bit edgy versus everyone's happy with being just mediocre. Totally fair. D- there's no denying that they've won a lot. Uh, last year was disappointing, but th- but they've won a lot. And they now to go back to that conference finals one was it was it legit? Absolutely, it was legit. The East now is not the East then, though. That was about the weak point of the East that they that they got through. But it was yeah. it's it's still legit. By the way, Horford, I maybe every player once they hit age thirty four just needs to go to a tanking team and take like six months off because that guy <laughs> looks like he's twenty six years old again. I don't know. He's like blocking four shots again. I don't know where the hell this came from, but he looks unbelievable. And the irony of the Celtics not wanting to pay him. They're paying them now, and they're getting they're getting requisite production. Can I get a little more Aaron Neesmith into my life? I've been beating the Aaron Neesmith drum for a while. I don't get why he's not playing every time. Now I know he missed like he was like one of eleven before last night. Sure. I like Aaron Neesmith. I want a little Aaron Neesmith in my life. So the one thing, like me as an analyst, because I'm not at practice every day, and I I like I, I love the fans wanting like the players that don't play to play. It's like everyone loves the backup quarterback and all that stuff. But it's like, I, I listen, I'm like with you. Why would I not want Aaron Neesmith? He plays so hard. He's like, he's, it's great to see him out there. I love the way he plays. He, he injects energy. He gets after it defensively. He doesn't take a possession off ever. Why would we not want him? But when a coach decides not to play a guy, like I, I'm giving you insight that they have more information than we do. Even though, even though I'm with you, like, like the Brian Scalabrini fan of the Boston Celtics is thinking, I want to see Aaron Neesmith and Peyton Pritchard a lot more. And there's got to be ways for those guys to get out there. But, you know, like as a coach, like if, if Aaron Neesmith's not performing in practice for whatever reason, you, you lose credibility by just giving minutes away. And I'm not saying he's not doing that. I don't know what it's like. And these are decisions that he has to make and live with. So I think when it comes to a, a playing time, that's a tough one. But I do agree with you. I, why would I not want a player that plays super hard and he gets after it and he's like, it seems like he's very appreciative of all the minutes. He never sulks or anything like that. So I do agree with you from that standpoint, but it's really hard because those guys are seeing the players and they're as a staff and upper uh, upstairs and, and coaching staff, are, they're deciding the minutes on these guys. A couple of just statistical nuggets before we wrap that I think you could spin them as encouraging or not. Um, the, ball, the Celtics are up to 12th in free throw rate, which is good for a team that, as you said, struggles to get to the rim, which they're still doing. But that's a, good, that's a good indicator. They're 15th in assist rate, which for like all the hullabaloo about they don't pass and this and that, those guys generally, when they draw two, make the right pass. Like they were hitting smart with tons of kickout passes last night. Now I, you're shaking your head no. Yeah. I will say – that Tatum, I think, or Brown rather, is just a, so he's not the most intuitive passer, I don't think. And Tatum has games where he does like the okay, uh, I've now dribbled myself into an emergency, so I'm going to pass only now instead of passing like one dribble earlier. 
But yes. 15th in assist rate, it's not like there's – and there's sixth in isolations, which is high. But it's not like the statistics are screaming – like this isn't Portland from two years ago or basically every year where they're number one in isolations and number 30 in assist rate. It's not quite that. So here's – and I know like I love when coaches and players say this stuff, and I think it's so bogus, right? Well, he had two on him, so he had to pass the ball. I'm like, no, 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 no. When you're the best player, like if you're the best player on the team and every time they put two on you, you pass the ball, you're not going to be very good. So so I want you to challenge two and pass the ball. I want Jalen Brown to come off a pick and roll and there's a guy on his hip and a big five feet down the, the floor and a drop. I want you to attack that, that big. I want you to snake action, get downhill, and then find somebody. Because like I said – Anybody can say, ah, oh, I had two on me. I just passed the ball. No, you got to be aggressive. If Luka Doncic passed the ball or LeBron James passed the ball every time they had two on them and never were aggressive, the teams wouldn't be very good and the players wouldn't be very good. So pick one. Pick one. Zach, you're either good because you could challenge two and put teams in rotation or you're not or you pass the ball every time you have two on you. So I'm not okay with with that. I think both these guys have to uptick. And like I met my boy Forsberg hit me with, um, well, Tatum passed the ball 77 times that game. I'm like, no, it's I, I only passes that matter are when you are getting downhill, drawing two, and then moving the ball. Those are the ones that you have to get better at, where you're like really challenging the defense and moving the ball. So those two guys, when they do that. Then we'll see the full potential of the Boston Celtics. And they're getting better at that, but they're not where they need to be as far as top five, top 15, top 10, top 20 players until they're consistently attacking, getting downhill. Brian Scalabrini, uh, you're the best. Uh, love listening to you and Mr. Gorman, the Hall of Famer uh, on Celtics broadcast. Uh, I will hopefully see you soon in Boston, but be well, my friend. Stay safe. You got it. Thanks. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.